Well, let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you to give you praise and glory because you are, are worth it. You are worth our devotion. You are worth our, our loyalty. You are worth everything that we have. And sometimes following you leads to uh, pain and suffering. But there is a joy that is set before us. So, Lord, as we talk about, um, well, uh, an issue that might become increasingly relevant, I pray that you will help us to uh, just do so being very mindful of your glory and your worthiness. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this past Tuesday at 2.29 Central Time, a C-17 departed from Hamid Karzai International Airport in Kabul, Afghanistan, carrying the last contingent of U.S. soldiers. At that point, the country of Afghanistan, a country of 38 million people, is squarely in the hands of the Taliban, a fundamentalist and often brutal sect of Islam. And, and it's a debacle for a number of reasons, which I will not get into today. But my primary concern is the fate of the church in Afghanistan. Even with the 20-year U.S. military presence, Afghanistan was rated as the second most oppressive regime, trailing only North Korea. Yet in spite of that, there has been robust growth in the Christian community. In 2013, the Christians numbered between two and 3,000 people. Uh, at this moment, they number between 10 and 12,000. Most of them, overwhelming numbers, are, are Muslim converts. Right, so it's been remarkable growth. In fact, this past July, some Christian leaders and pastors, a group of 30 of them, formally declared themselves to the government and put on their government identification that they are Christians. And then the Taliban took over, and many of them are hiding, running for, for their lives. Right now, many Christians are experiencing death threats. Uh, some of them have lost their daughters to forced marriages. Many of them are trying to get out of the country. Some of them are turning off their cell phones for fear that they might be tracked. Uh, this is, uh, they're on the precipice of, of persecution that has happened in the past and will continue in the future. Because persecution is something that really comes with a life that is consecrated to the Lord. When Jesus asks you to pick up your cross and follow him, sometimes it actually leads to a cross. In the words of John 15, 20, Jesus tells his disciples tonight he was about to be crucified. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, persecution ebbs and flows, right? What we are dealing with right now in this country is nothing compared to Afghanistan, but that doesn't mean there can't be a real oppression or persecution in some form. And when you see brothers and sisters in Christ suffering, uh, naturally a, a question might cross your mind, right? If I was in that situation and the Taliban were knocking on my door, would I confess Christ to them? 
at the potential cost of my life or the life of my children? Would you confess Christ? Right, because isn't that the question? And that is a reality that should it happen, I trust that the Holy Spirit would greatly assist any and all people in that moment. But there is something that you can do to prepare for that moment should it ever come. We're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, and and to kind of refresh you on the situation that we are in. Paul returned to Rome at potential cost to his life. There was a legendary fire that broke out in Rome. Emperor Nero was blamed for it. He was falling in popularity, and even though there were, he was the emperor, some of the palace intrigue might put his rule in jeopardy, and so he did what many politicians do. He found somebody to blame. And this unusual sect who did not practice a Roman religion seemed to fit the bill. It was the Christians. And so he would round up many of the Christians in Rome and find creative ways to, to martyr them, using them as human torches at garden parties and the like. Paul, sensing a calling there, went to Rome and he was promptly arrested and put into a dank prison. And, and soon after this letter was, was written, a Roman sword would sever his head from his body. He was a man who was undergoing persecution, who was thinking about persecution, and he's preparing Timothy for persecution. And this is what he tells him. 2 Corinthians 10, 3, verse 10 through 13. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and at Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Now, we make a lot of the promises of the Bible, right? There's therefore no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus, right? Great promise. I will never leave you. I'll never forsake you. Great promise. Right? Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be granted to you. Great promise. But we have another promise here. Indeed, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And so should persecution come... How do you know if you will be faithful? Well, today's sermon title is Preparing for Persecution, and, and this is what it means to prepare for persecution. Who you are in the midst of persecution is who you were before the persecution. Who you are now before persecution is who you will be during the persecution. Persecution is not some sort of magic sauce that just brings out the best in you if the best is not there. Frankly, to prepare for persecution means that you are continually preparing yourself right now. And so that is uh, something for us to keep in mind. And, and granted, 
we may not have Taliban-like persecution, but there's other forms that might take place as well. And how do you know that you will stand faithful? How can you make sure that should the Taliban or the Nazis or whoever knocks on your door, that you will be ready in that moment to testify to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now, to prepare for that, I have a two-point outline. Number one, execute faithful living. And secondly, expect suffering. Execute faithful living and expect suffering. So look at the first point, execute faithful living, right? Who you are going into a trial is who you'll be during the trial. And so it makes sense that you're always preparing yourself and you are fortifying yourself so that shouldn't the trial come, you're going to be ready for it. Verse uh, 10 through 11. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Now previously, Paul is cataloging all of the sinful, selfish, self-loving traits of the heretics and the people who are following him, and he basically gives him some soul security, right? He is telling them about the, the strategies and the underhanded ways that they have to try to draw people into their dark world. But then he pivots to Timothy and says, you, however, or but as for you, right, Timothy, you are different. You will not fall into this pit. I know you're going to be faithful. You're going to be faithful because you have followed me. Now that, now, when Paul says, because you follow me, you're going to be just fine, that kind of sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, let's just be honest. Some of you are silently judging Paul right now. But we know that Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He is giving very real practical advice to Timothy. You have followed me, and the idea is you, you keep it up. And this is not the only time he says it. He tells the Corinthians in 11.1, 1, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. See, Paul understands that sometimes truth is not just taught, it's also caught. And I look at my own life. I've been ministered by many men, and a lot of it is in the form of sermons right? Great sermons, but often it's the preacher's life that preaches to me a stronger sermon than the sermon itself. I look at uh, Jack Hughes, my former pastor, the one who really mentored me. He, I would invite myself over for dinner. I wouldn't really invite myself over for dinner. I'd just show up hungry at 5.30 and they fed me. But I, uh, I would watch as they would lead family devotions, put their kids to bed, discipline their kids. Uh, I, I saw that they not only taught the words of the Bible, they really saw the Bible as instructive for how they structured their life and their family. Remember another guy who's on staff with a, camp, with a uh, Christian ministry named uh, Kevin Pettit. And I'd be playing basketball and I'd be getting competitive, losing, frustrated. And as he would guard me, he would ask, bro, how's your heart? 
just fine, thank you. You know, but it was just one of those. <laughs> but you know what? That was a message, right? Like, you still have to walk with the Lord when you play basketball. Just like you have to walk with the Lord when you do anything in life, right? Those were things that was, that I, that was caught because I followed their example. And you look at this world, I mean, how many, how many influencers are out there, right? You have internet influencers. They're basically out there on the internet trying to influence you, trying to get you to, to follow them. So you have all this buffet of people that you can follow. And, and Paul tells Timothy, certainly don't follow these false teachers and these lovers of self. I want you to follow me just like you always have done, right? It's not wrong if you are walking with the Lord, it's not wrong to tell people, don't follow them, follow me, as I follow Christ. It's for their benefit. Parents, don't you do that with your kids? And so he's telling Timothy that you need to follow me, to prepare for persecution. And Paul's persecuted, about to die, about to be a martyr. He's telling Timothy, you follow me. And then he gives a list of, of nine things to follow. Seven of them are kind of active traits and two of them are, are passive. And, and each of them fortify Timothy for the trials to come. The first thing he says to follow is follow my teaching. Follow my teaching. Now you might have heard the phrase, you are what you eat, right? If you eat a bunch of deep, deep fried food, you will be deep fried in some sense. You know what I'm saying? You bathe food in fat, you eat fat, right? That's what's going to happen. You are what you eat. Well, in the Bible, you are what you think, right? What you think about the Lord, what you think about theology is determinative of, of how you live, right? If you think that God is just this cosmic hippie who's just winking at your sin and he's just fine with whatever you do, you will live like it. If you see God as this overbearing despot, you will be afraid of him, but you won't love him. See, what you think about God and what you think about the gospel really matters. I mean, Paul makes this point very clear in, let's say, Galatians 1.8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel, gospel contrary to the one you preached, I'm sorry, let me say that whole thing again. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. You get the gospel wrong, you'll be damned. What you believe matters. And so Paul spent his life teaching the truth. He would teach the Gentiles that you don't have to be circumcised to be right with the Lord. Faith is sufficient. He would teach the Jews that Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He would teach the gospel about how God can justify the ungodly, and those who did not like the message itself would persecute him for it. Right? Ultimately, he was being persecuted for his theological convictions. And so, if you are suffering for being a Christian, are you suffering for being a cultural Christian, suffering for your tradition, or suffering for the truth? And if you are suffering for the truth, how convinced are you that the truth is true? 
That's why being a grounded Christian, being a solid Christian, is someone who knows the Word, who knows what it teaches, so that they can have the strength of conviction to stand up should the Taliban knock on your door. I believe Jesus is the Son of God because I believe the Word of God, and I believe that He was killed on a cross, raised on the third day, and He was declared the Son of God in righteousness. That's why I believe. So, to prepare for persecution, how sure are you of what you believe? Do you believe it with conviction? And if you believe it with conviction, it will show itself in your conduct, right? Follow my teaching, follow my conduct. It speaks of the way of life. Timothy would have seen how Paul shopped at the local market. He would have seen how he interacted with uh, various Christians, how he arranged lodging for the night, how he handled hecklers when he was preaching. He would have seen a gracious, humble demeanor. But a lot of times you can tell who a Christian is by how they conduct themselves. Now, yesterday I feasted on football. It was epic. It was awesome. Loved it. And one part of the football ritual is you always get the post-game interviews, and they're always very revealing, especially during the playoffs when somebody got eliminated. And here's a question. Do you learn more about the winners or the losers during those interviews? Well, you learn that the winners won and that they're awesome. But with the losers, you learn a lot about how gracious they are, how humble they are. When you see somebody be interviewed who is truly grateful that they got to play, who takes responsibility for their mistakes, who is happy for the other team, who very much says, this is just a game, I have greater priorities in life, there's something about that strength of character in those moments where their heart is just broken that is very revealing. Right? Who somebody is in that moment is often very revealing. And I always Google these people, Becky could testify, to find out if they're a Christian, and often they are. Right? Your conduct, your way of life, is revealing of not only your, your doctrine, your teaching, but also your aim in life. Right? What are your priorities? That's the next one. Paul had a clear purpose. His resolve was to live for Christ. He wanted to proclaim the glory of Christ. He wanted to build up the church of Christ. He wanted the people in the church to be complete in Christ, right? That, that was his conviction. Nate Phipps and I were talking the other day, and he, he told me about a question he likes to ask young people. You know, there's many kids in the youth group who aren't quite sure if they're saved or not, if they understand the gospel. You know, they believe the gospel, they believe all other stuff, but he asked them this question. Who are you living for? Who are you living for? Isn't that a great question? It's a great one to ask yourself right now. Who am I living for? Who am I living for? Now, if you're living for yourself, and you're a lover of self, and persecution comes, and there will be pain promised to you, if you stand up for Christ, what decision will you make? But if you live for others and for the Lord and the prospect of suffering for the sake of Christ comes to you, where or what, what will you do? Right? Who are you living for? The aim of life, the strength of conviction is my life is not my own. It belongs to the Lord. I am willing to suffer ministry. 
I'm willing to endure hardship because Jesus is worth it. Fourth, follow my faith. Now, faith can mean uh, a couple of things. It could be objective in the object of his faith, right? Follow the object of my faith, which would be Jesus. But given that he's already mentioned teaching and has already mentioned the importance of doctrine, he's probably talking about the subjective nature of faith. You know, just your, your ability to believe when the world is telling you not to believe. Right? Paul, Paul was in many situations, right, where he is in the open sea, his ship is falling apart, but he still has faith that the Lord will provide that way of deliverance because an angel appeared to him. You know, there were times when life didn't make sense to him. God wasn't answering his prayer. He wasn't removing the thorn that is so painfully afflicting him. But he had faith that the Lord had a greater purpose for it, right? So part of enduring it is you always have faith in the midst of trial. God is present. God is real. God is sovereign. And he is doing something in the midst of this pain. It's faith. This leads to the next one, which is patience. Which is patience. And there's a couple of fronts of patience. Let's just be honest. Sometimes you are patient with people. You're patient with people. Sometimes you're trying to help somebody. Like you look at Paul trying to help the Corinthians church and they turn on him. They bite him. They throw him under the bus. And yet you see how he still loves them even though he's maltreated. I mean, as somebody in ministry basically not treated you well, like you want to do the after all I've done for you speech to them, right? After all I've done for you, this is what you do. I have secretly wanted to, well, I've had that speech, but sometimes secretly, sometimes openly. But that's not patient. It's not patient. There's also patient with, with growth. People don't grow as fast as you want them to grow. Truth be known, you're not growing as fast as you want others to grow. There's patience with just circumstances, right? You're in the midst of some trial and you're thinking, how long, O oh Lord? Can we just kind of speed up the process here so we can get beyond it? And yet it still grinds on. See, ultimately, patience is, is an expression of faith where, Lord, you're in charge of the timetable, not me. The suffering will go on as long as you want it to go on. And God has a purpose for the patient. It grows you in a couple of areas, beginning with love, right? You love people even though they're difficult to love. If everybody responded to everything you wanted them to respond to, and they were easy to love, what good is that, right? And love is most clearly expressed in giving of yourself for the good of others. Jesus says in John 15, 13, Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's when you know you really love somebody. Now, the opposite of love is self-love. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, this is the opposite of love. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. You see, you can't love yourself and love others at the same time. 
You can't love yourself and love God at the same time. Now, you can love others and love God at the same time. You just can't love yourself and love God and love others at the same time. That is the cruciform always dying to yourself, loving and living for others. Those are the people who will take persecution for the good of others. Then there's steadfastness. This speaks of endurance. One of my favorite words should be in a new translation of the Bible, grit, right? They're able to have fortitude, bear with it. Paul uses this word in Romans 5, 25, 3 through 4. Romans 5, 3 through 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that our suffering produces endurance. And endurance, that steadfastness, produces character and character produces hope. You see, to develop endurance, as those of you in cross country know, you run as hard and fast as you can, or maybe not as fast as you can, but you run until you feel like you can't run anymore. And then what do you do? You run further. Right? You, you take it as far as you think you possibly can and you go further. And then afterwards, right, your endurance begins to grow. And really, one of the enemies of endurance is a, is a four-letter word. Quit. Quit. Or a five-letter sentence. I quit. You know what? My marriage is hard, so I'll quit. My job is hard, so I'll quit. Staying on this diet is hard, so I'm going to quit. But practicing, I didn't know it was going to be this hard. I'm just going to quit. Reading through my Bible in a year is hard, so I guess I'll, I'll quit. You know, this ministry assignment that I signed up for took, well, Way more of my time than I thought. So I'll quit. Can you build endurance if you always quit? Now, I'm not saying that it's always wrong to quit. But quitting should not be your first instinct. The first instinct when there's a challenge is not to avoid it by quitting. The first instinct is, this is a way that the Lord may be teaching me endurance. This is a way that he's preparing me for maybe a greater child that will require more endurance. In fact, that kind of endurance prepared Paul for what we see in verse 11. And he talks about my persecutions and sufferings. That happened to me in Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra. This is uh, Paul's first missionary journey, right? He was sent out with Barnabas, came to the city in Antioch. It was a uh, a Roman city that was extremely important that had some very important citizens who, who lived there. Originally, they went great guns, but the Jews turned the leading citizens against them and they were forced to flee and they went to Iconium. Again, Paul had signs and wonders. They had a very large explosive ministry that was, that was kind of cleaving the town between those who are for the apostles or for the Jews. Eventually, the Jews one out, they threatened to pelt Paul with stones, and so he moved to Lystra. And at Lystra, he and Barnabas healed a lame man, and that caused all kinds of fanfare where the local natives thought that they were Roman gods. But when Paul made it clear that they were not, they became disillusioned, and some Jews from Iconium came and poisoned the crowd, and they, they 
took Paul and they pelted him with stones. Now, of all the ways to die, there's burning at the stake and being pelted with stones. Paul was pelted with stones and they thought he was dead. And then they dragged him out of the city. And do you know what he did? Lystra is actually Timothy's hometown, by the way. It's probably why he's mentioning this. He got up and went back into the city. I mean, that's grit. That is grit. He was revived and he went on telling his disciples in, in Acts 14, 21 through 22, when they had preached the gospel to that city, and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples and encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Right? He understood that the gospel was worth suffering for. But he had hope in the midst of it, in verse 11, which persecutions I endured, yet the Lord, yet from all, the Lord rescued me. God preserved his life. Now I want to be clear here, okay? God will always deliver a Christian from suffering. Did you know that? But sometimes that deliverance is through the agency of death. Stephen, remember Stephen? Man full of the Holy Spirit preached one of the great sermons in, in Christian history in Acts chapter 7. And the Jews did not like being accused of theocide, of killing the Son of God. And so before they were about to take him to execute him, he looked up and he saw, saw Jesus waiting for him. Jesus was up there waiting to rescue his child and he did so through death. So Paul understood that God will always rescue the Christian. In this case, in these cases, right, it, it was through deliverance so that he can continue in the ministry. But in a matter of time, a short while, it will be through deliverance by taking his body up to, or taking his soul up to heaven. Ultimately, we know that even if the U.S. government abandons the Afghan Christians, the Lord will not abandon them. And he will not abandon you. You don't need to be afraid. You will not suffer alone. Jesus suffered alone on the cross so that you would never suffer alone when you suffer. He will always be with you. And so whatever persecution comes your way, you you can persevere if you are executing faithful living. You are faithful to him. He will be faithful to you during that time. Now, another thing to prepare you for persecution is not just faithful living, but having an expectation that sometime you will need to draw upon these lessons, that your moment may come. Paul makes this promise in verse 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. All right, it's pretty straightforward. If you live a godly life, you will be persecuted. 
Now, I want to make it very clear. The persecution comes when you live a godly life. For persecution to count as real persecution, it has to be because you have lived a godly life. Oh, Pastor Dave, I got fired from my job for sharing the gospel. Okay? Tell me about it. Well, my boss called me in and said, I can't share the gospel. Well, when were you doing it? Well, I would do it with my coworker, and we would just sit down and just talk about scriptures for about three hours. On work time? On work time. Okay. You're not a martyr, my friend. Oh, Pastor Dave, I wrote this paper talking about the evils of evolution and the need for the gospel. Oh, really? And they gave you an F? Yeah, they gave me an F. Well, what was the, the topic? Talk about the presence of oppression in the Victorian system after reading Jane Eyre? Well, my friend, that really had nothing to do with that paper. I have an internet ministry where I tell people like it is. I expose false teachers. I take a stand for truth and a stand for the gospel. And these people are mean to me. Well, it might be because you're being a jerk. Does that make sense? Just because you experience bad things and you happen to be a Christian doesn't mean that you're actually being persecuted. The type of persecution that we're talking about here is one that's rooted in living an actual godly life. And that does happen. One of the reasons why is found in John 3.20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. When somebody at work tells a filthy joke and you don't laugh, there is an awkwardness there, isn't there? They feel offended that you don't find what they find funny. You don't go along with an unethical decision at work. You won't lie for your boss. They want you to do an accounting trick that you know is not legal. And so, you get a target. You won't celebrate Pride Month with everybody else. People don't want to be told that they are wrong. Darkness does not like the light. Now, in contrast, somebody who blends in with the world, who doesn't share their faith, he stays silent, decides to be an undercover Christian, they don't ruffle any feathers, they just go along, and they're nice, safe, harmless Christians. But when you take a stand for your faith, when you share your faith, not during work time, but afterwards, right? When you share your faith, you can expect some pushback. If you tell people that the Bible teaches that hell is a real place, that only those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ who turn from their sin and embrace what he did on the cross will be rescued from there. They will be offended. When you tell them that Jesus actually expects you to follow him, to live a life of sexual purity, to purge yourself of anger and other vices, they will be offended because darkness does not like the light. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Ultimately, people who live evil lives, people who are ensnared by their sin, and it could be the sin of self-righteousness, by the way. Often the people who respond hardest to Christians are the most self-righteous. 
when you tell them that your religion and everything you believe about your religion is wrong, sometimes the things drop because they're like the older brother. They believe that they are good people and to have somebody tell them otherwise is deeply offensive to them. And, and this can take many forms, but when you decide to do this, you can expect pushback and persecution. Now, this kind of begs the question, right? We're framing this with the whole Taliban. You read that those who live godly lives will be persecuted. And you look at the Taliban who are persecuting Christians and you think, I am not persecuted like the Taliban, therefore am I living a godly life? Right? Have you ever had that discussion with yourself or with others? Am I really being godly if I'm not persecuted like they are in Afghanistan? And this is where one of uh, the early church leaders, Jerome, could be very helpful. You might know of Jerome, 4th, 5th century scholar, loved the Bible, translated the Bible into Latin, and that was uh, the common language of the Western Roman Empire at the time. But he considered this, and, and what he did was he, he categorized two kinds of martyrs. You have the, the red martyr or the wet martyr. These are the martyrs who actually spill their blood. Those who die faithful to Christ, those are the red martyrs. Then you have the, the white martyrs. Now the white martyrs are those who live a cruciform life. They, they pick up their cross and they follow Jesus. They live a life of self-denial. They suffer for the choices that they have made, either through their own self-discipline or perhaps persecution in other forms. Those are white martyrs. Red martyrs and white martyrs. And for the white martyr, I mean, in this day and age, it might be social disapproval, loss of job opportunities. It could be voluntary impoverishment because of giving and generosity. It could be just bearing the burden of other people's hurts and struggles, right? Caring about people does lead to suffering. But here's the deal. Not every white martyr is a red martyr. But every red martyr is a white martyr. Okay? Not everyone who spills their blood, not, not every Christian is going to be someone who spills their blood for Christ. But everyone who spills their blood for Christ is a faithful Christian up until that point. 1965, an Australian doctor by the name of Graham Staines visited eastern India at the invitation of a friend. And he was so moved by the plight of many of the Indians, particularly those who suffer from leprosy, that he left a promising career as a physician, traveled to India, eastern India, and for the next four and a half decades of his life, poured himself into ministry. He was a pillar in the community. He eventually married later in life, and together he and his wife had this profound community impact. They worked with people who were ostracized by the society at large because of their leprosy, and they relieved suffering in many other ways. He was also a, a committed Christian, part of the Evangelical Mission Society, and his love for the Indian people led him to want to relieve suffering 
in this life, but also the life to come. He would bear witness, he would share the gospel, even help translate the, the New Testament into the local language. He was a committed follower of Christ. Now, India, if you're familiar with the caste system, uh, is a highly structured society where everybody needs to know their place, and all of this is driven by religious convictions. And, and many of these caste structures are inherently oppressive. And so when someone comes to Christ, they're liberated from that structure and they buck against it, much to the consternation of many Hindu nationalists who want everyone to be in their place. Well, on the night of January the 22nd, 1999, Graham Staines and his two sons, Philip, who was age 10, and Timothy, uh, age 6, went to a jungle camp, and on the way back, they realized it was too dark to continue driving. And so they camped out and slept in the back of their station wagon. Now, according to reports, a mob of 50 people, led by a Hindu nationalist, armed with axes and other implements, attacked the car. Graham tried to rescue his boys, tried to get out of the car, but he's prevented from doing so. They poured gasoline all over the car, and they lit it on fire. And the next day, um, authorities discovered the charred remains of Graham Staines holding his two sons. So here's the question. Was he a white martyr or a red martyr? The answer is he was both. If you're going to be someone who will one day die for Christ, you need to be someone who is daily dying for Christ. Daily denying himself. Who you are going into a trial is who will be in the midst of it. Now, this doesn't mean that we should just walk up and to the Taliban and try to be killed. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 2, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, with the aim that we could share the gospel. Right? Our heart for the Afghan church is not that they're persecuted, but that God gives them the ability to practice their faith. Right? That is what we should want. Right? That's why advocating for religious freedom here is a great thing to do but here's the deal. If religious freedom is pulled back and Christians are persecuted, it's not the end of the world. See, God can use what man means for evil, and persecution is an evil. God can take that evil and use it for good. And I want to give you a variety of ways why that's the case, why, why suffering and how suffering is used for good. Number one, suffering brings fellowship with Christ. Philippians 3.10, Paul says that I may know him and know the power of his resurrection and share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Right? When you die to yourself and live for Christ, when you impoverish yourself by giving generously, the young woman who goes overseas and forsakes prospects for marriage so that she can work in an orphanage, or perhaps the young man who leaves a promising career to go into ministry, they are dying to themselves. And if you die to yourself, you're dying like Christ died and you share in the fellowship of the resurrection. 
Philippians 3.11, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering leads to fellowship with Christ. Christ suffered, you suffer, you guys suffer together. Two, suffering assures us of our salvation. Paul, or sorry, Peter reassures those suffering under Nero with this. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ Jesus. I mean, some of you may struggle with your salvation and assurance of your salvation, right? And, and you wish there was like an indicator light on you that would say, saved, saved, saved. Or if it's not, then you would, could change it. You could flip it. Well, that's what suffering does. When you suffer for Christ and you stay faithful, that gives you assurance of salvation, which is more precious than gold. Suffering will be rewarded in the hereafter. Mark 10, 29 through 30. Truly I say to you, there is one, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Fourth, suffering is a means of winning unbelievers to Christ and encouraging believers in Christ. Paul, when he was in the Philippian prison, was able to share with the palace guard. Many of those who heard about his faithfulness rejoiced and were more motivated to share their faith. Fifth, suffering develops character. Develops character. James 1, 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and steadfastness and for and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Suffering weans us from loving the world. John 17, 14. I have given, you, given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sometimes when you live a godly life, the world will reject you. That group of friends who you saw as really important to you, find out that you're a Christian, you want to live a righteous life, instead of being true friends who will support and nurture that, they rage against it and they reject you. And you know what that does? That gives you opportunities to make new friends. Sometimes suffering delivers you from relationships that are not sanctifying. It pushes you into the church. It weans you from loving the world. And seventh, Suffering purifies the church. Suffering purifies the church. When there's a season of suffering, you find out who is truly committed to the church. Now, we look at the pandemic, and it has been pruning for this church. Uh, a lot of sin has come out in marriages and relationships and families. We've been forced to deal with it. It's revealed latent fears and anxieties. And frankly, you know, there's been some in this church and other churches who just won't go back to church. And if the prospect of sickness is enough to 
keep them from the body? Should the Taliban come? They won't be resistant to that either. But it's also revealed some of the best in our church. I look at the young people who last year held many of the ministries together with their faithful service, and that was encouraging. I look at some of the, the seniors who heard my all-hands-on-deck message and signed up for child care. And I come down on Tuesday morning, and it's like a good reality TV show where you see people out of place managing all their kids, doing whatever they could to help the church. It's been noble. It's been wonderful to see. I see people risking their health to serve other people. Right? The pandemic has brought out a, a lot of good things, and I'm, I'm extremely encouraged by the church during this time. Because what it reveals is when you're willing to serve in the midst of difficulty, when you're willing to risk your health for the good of other people to build up the body of Christ, you are dying to yourself. And that's why I'm convinced that should persecution, real persecution, come to this church, I think, by and large, our church will be found faithful. But we can't rest on those laurels, right? You, you have to continue to cultivate an attitude of faithfulness. And so when you look at the Afghan brothers that we have, and I want to encourage you to pray for our brothers and sisters there, right? Pray that they will be found faithful. Pray that the Lord will protect them, that in their suffering they'll honor Christ. But another way that you can honor them is being faithful yourself. We may not have somebody pointing a gun at our heads asking us if we're going to live for Christ, but we do have a call from Scripture where Jesus says, whoever wants to follow me must pick up his cross daily and follow him. And sometimes when you pick up your cross daily, it will lead you actually to a crucifixion site. But in the meantime, dying to yourself takes all kinds of forms. And so as you prepare yourself for suffering, look for opportunities to deny yourself, to sacrificially love other people, to emulate the example of Paul. And Lord willing, if we ever meet that moment of persecution, and it can come in all forms, the Holy Spirit will strengthen what's already there so that we can stand for Christ when it matters. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are grateful for this guidance, this direction, the example of Paul, the example of Timothy, the example of our Afghan brothers and sisters. And Lord, we live in a hostile world that hates you, hates your word, hates your church. We are living countercultural lives, and Lord, it can be difficult and exhausting, but Lord, I pray that we will be strengthened, that at the end, there will be a great reward, namely that we'll see you face to face. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.